0: Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker,
1: princess in need of rescuing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we thought we had reached the end of our season on the films of 1989 Uh, If you listen to our most recent episode, it was the epilogue, which which sounds like something that happens after the end, even. But um, we had a little discussion, and we decided to do a bonus episode here on a movie that we mentioned uh, a lot in that epilogue, as well as in uh, at least a few other episodes, I think. A major movie of 1989, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing which, uh, Jason, I know you're also uh, a big fan of this movie. You had mentioned it might have even been your pick for the 1989 season.
1: Yeah, it was in the running. And, you know, we always know with this show, we're going to miss some movies. You know, 94, our first season, we didn't do Shawshank, stuff like that. But um, that's part of the fun of the show, picking what we choose, having to leave certain things out. I just felt like this is the seminal movie of 1989. And if we don't cover it, we just wouldn't have completed our service, Josh, our, uh, you know, just our jobs or what we're, what our goal is for this podcast. It's just too important of a movie and too essential to 1989 to leave out. So
0: that's why we're doing the bonus episode, baby. Yeah, there were, I I think, I feel like there were a few other movies that were, really major 89 movies that we also mentioned multiple times in other episodes. And and maybe we'll get some more bonus episodes down the road. But this is certainly an extremely important film from 1989. It is an an era-defining film, uh, I think, in a lot of ways. So it's absolutely important for us to talk about. And uh, it's good that we're, uh, we're able to do this on the fly here. Uh, in our little remote setup and, uh, talk about do the right thing. It was a pretty big, I mean, I guess you could say it was a big hit. It wasn't like a blockbuster level hit, but it was fairly successful at the box office, grossing $37.3 million on its budget of 6 million. Uh, it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 1989, which, uh, we had mentioned when we were talking about Cannes in prior episodes and was immediately acclaimed, uh, from the festival, and then just got a huge amount of acclaim from critics as it was released later in 1989 uh, in theaters. It was eventually also nominated for two Oscars, although as we talked about uh, fairly extensively in our Driving Miss Daisy episode, there was a lot of controversy that it wasn't nominated for more. However, it did get nominations for Best Supporting Actor for Danny Aiello and Best Original Screenplay for Spike Lee, writer, director, producer Spike Lee. Uh, It lost both of those awards. Uh, Danny Aiello lost to Denzel Washington, future Spike Lee collaborator uh, in Glory, and Spike Lee lost to Dead Poets Society for Best Original Screenplay. Dead Poets Society, another movie that I feel like we mentioned a lot in this season that I have never seen.
1: Yeah, I haven't either. But you're right, and I know when we talked about uh, Sex Lies, and when Harry Met Sally, we had mentioned that um, screenplay category, which was just stacked that year with Dead Poets Society, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Sex Lies, and Videotapes, uh, When Harry Met Sally, and then Do the Right Thing.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Of those, Dead Poets is the only one that I haven't seen. But those those other selections are all like extremely well written movies, well deserved uh, of those nominations.
1: I mean. I don't know how Spike Lee didn't get a nomination. I mean, I do know, but yeah. you know. <laughs> I think
0: I think it's pretty obvious.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, it should have been for best picture, I think. And um man, if fight the power doesn't get a nomination for best song. Come on, man. You Oscar so white, especially in eighty nine.
0: Yeah, well, and 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 really not all that much better going through the current era. But I was actually I was surprised. I was like, oh, look, Danny Aiello lost. It was a there was a a black actor nominated in that category who actually won. But yeah, obviously, the racial element of this movie had a a big impact on whether it was nominated for any awards. Spike Lee not nominated for Best Director. As you mentioned, Fight the Power, which I hadn't even realized was was created for this movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. Such a signature song of Public Enemy, not nominated. Uh, and we could go down all the other elements of this movie that were fantastic, from the production design to the cinematography, uh, none of which ended up getting nominations. Right, right.
1: And 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 all are worthy. And, you know, when we talk about Fight the Power, it's not just the song. It's how that song elevates the scenes that it's in. I mean, it's so essential to this movie, you know. So... um, And I would say, uh, dude, uh, we're going to get into it, but I I think John Totoro also could have had a supporting actor nomination here, man. That dude is so impressive all the time and uh, just uh, riveting to watch in this film.
0: Yeah, I mean a lot of a lot of great acting in this movie. And and I think that's a good point too about Fight the Power that the Oscars I think too often just in general nominate songs for best original song that are just like here was a song in the credits. And I think it's so much better when you can nominate a song that had like a central purpose to the movie and that's clearly something that Fight the Power has in this movie.
1: And you know, it's kind of that throwback to the 60s and 70s where they would have a song in multiple parts of the film, you know, to kind of keep the theme going and and uh it really really does it well here yeah i think you're right i mean you know the controversy of was spike lee trying to incite violence or not and you know spike lee's come back like well would a white audience feel that um they would need to go shoot a bunch of people after seeing a schwarzenegger movie you know there's so much underlying racism um when people judge this film that I think they didn't even realize they were being racist about,
0: right. I mean, and that's that's another way that that reactions to films continue uh, even now when we have films with similar themes, unfortunately. Um but despite that, there's definitely that controversy. Overall, this movie was extremely well reviewed uh, by critics. Uh, the majority of whom are white uh, were, you know, were in 1989 white and and are and still are. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just the fact. That's just the truth is that, uh, you know, even if it's more diverse now, the majority of film critics are white, are white men, really. Uh, and two white men, Siskel and Ebert, um, they, gave it, they gave it two thumbs up. And they also both named it the best movie of 1989 and uh, were really, really taken with it. Uh, Roger Ebert, in his review, said... Do the Right Thing is not filled with brotherly love, but it is not filled with hate either. It comes out of a weary urban cynicism that has settled down around us in recent years. The good feelings and many of the hopes of the 1960s have evaporated, and today it no longer would be accurate to make a movie about how the races in America are all going to love one another. I wish we could see such love. But instead, we have deepening class divisions in which the middle classes of all races flee from what's happening in the inner city, while a series of national administrations provide no hope for the poor. Do the Right Thing tells an honest, unsentimental story about those who are left behind. And uh, sadly, I feel like all of that currently applies as well. I mean, that's, mm. uh, that's you know, right now we're in the middle of a global
1: pandemic and we're seeing... Uh, racism towards, uh, Chinese Americans because of this, this virus started in China. So obviously every Chinese American must be responsible for it. Right. Um, but I agree with you. Like, I mean, you know, at the end of this film, he dedicates it to, um, like six black people who were, um, either killed or, uh, abused by police. Right. And I mean, had he made it this decade or I mean, uh, in the 2010s, it would have been Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. And it just, you know, Eric Garner, it's just nonstop. It's as that's why I think this movie is so important. It is as, um, the points are as prevalent today as they were in 1989. Yes.
0: Sadly, that is true. Uh, and one <laughs> more quick note
1: on, uh, Ebert and, yes. uh, Siskel, uh, Siskel had it as the number six best movie of the entire 1980s. And, ebert had it as his number four
0: yeah they were really really uh high on it and i think uh i I was watching a bit of their discussion of it and you know they're talking about how so many white audiences don't want to engage with it and how outraged they are that people won't even give this movie you know a fair shake or whatever that they're trying to convince other people to see it and that people aren't willing to listen to them and uh you know, it's a it's a sad thing to hear, but not, again, all that surprising. Right. Dessen Thompson in The Washington Post, one of the few uh, African-American critics working in 1989, he said, Lee has fused political message, gripping drama and community comedy with finesse. Whether or not you agree with his provocative views and late in the movie, some of his conclusions could upset the most open minded of viewers. There's no doubt about the film's sheer power and taut originality. There's no gotta about this anymore. Spike has it. With Do the Right Thing, the maker of She's Gotta Have It and School Days has made a quantum leap into the ranks of America's most serious-minded movie makers. This is radical filmmaking at its best. It'll have you arguing and laughing all the way home. You'd be doing the right thing to bring your posterior on down to catch it. So even, even, even in this, with this film, critics. Can't resist the uh, the punnery, the Gene Shallot type.
1: Uh, yes, yes,
0: exactly. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, that was another a point that I hadn't thought of because Spike Lee is such a, a major filmmaker and has been for the past thirty years. That this was, well, I guess, his third film, and the previous movies he made were kind of these smaller scale, more comedic movies. Um, and I actually, I haven't seen either of those early Spike Lee films. She's got to have it or school days, but this was clearly like a huge leap forward for him, um, at the time.
1: I mean, I've seen them both and, um, she's got to have it kind of, you know, uh, a smaller story. I'd agree. Uh, again, part of his Brooklyn chronic, the, the originator of the Brooklyn Chronicle series for him, but school days is a giant musical, you know, and he did it on a, um, Uh, small budget. So I, I don't think technically it's that big of a leap. Although Ernest Dickerson, you know, the cinematography is amazing the way he's able to like get full scenes from like a crane shot or just kind of zigzag from one story to the next. But I do think the maturity in writing and characters is the, the biggest leap for Spike Lee in this.
0: Yeah. And I think also, I guess what I mean is that this was a huge leap in terms of the attention that he got in terms of the audience that he reached and in terms of the acclaim, like those earlier movies were more, uh, maybe niche audience movies that maybe critics were aware of, but, uh, and, and maybe black viewers were aware of, but not a sort of wider general audience thing. And this is a movie that everyone in 1989 knew about.
1: Well, it's like you said, right? Like again, 1989, Spike Lee in the 80s right as he started he was a quote-unquote black filmmaker right that's how he was uh boxed in and this even this like you said Siskel and Ebert were like hey whiteies, go see the movie you know go go see it you whites (laughs) those were their words
0: exactly yes (laughs) You, you,
1: you whites um but yeah I mean it's so easy to just lump someone in oh you know it would just be like saying oh Parasite's just a Korean movie and you know don't go see it because you don't like movies about Korea or something like that. You know what I mean? It's so stupid. Um, so I don't. I guess that that kind of idea of like, yeah, it wasn't this massive hit, but it was on the top of everyone's tongue. That that makes sense to me as a leap forward.
0: Right. That's what I mean. Just in terms of the awareness and the the sense of him as this major filmmaker who's doing something important and notable. So lastly, uh, Peter Travers in Rolling Stone said, Do the Right Thing seems more likely to provoke debate than destruction. The movie isn't dangerous, though the festering racial hatred it depicts assuredly is. Lee's two previous films, She's Gotta Have It and School Days, made some piercing stabs at social commentary, but neither prepared us for the purge of raw emotion that detonates this powder keg. Lee invests his film with the hot damn urgency of a man long spoiling to be heard. In his eagerness, Lee sometimes muddles his points by getting preachy, but the feeling persists that this is the movie that Lee, now 31, had to make. So yeah, and he was quite young still when he made this movie.
1: Yeah, that's accurate. He wrote the script in two weeks. Pretty impressive, you know. I would add uh, Wesley Morris, you know, since we are talking about noted film critics and noted African-American film critics, uh, has called this his favorite movie ever.
0: Yeah, I don't know if Wesley Morris was working in '89, but he certainly—he uh, might have been, but he certainly is a, a, a quite a notable critic for the last uh, you know decade or two. Um, had so had you? Um, obviously, I assume neither of us saw this in 1989. But uh, when did you first see this?
1: Uh, the first time I saw this was in college, and it blew me away. It was amazing. And, um, I still think it's amazing. And I, it was a pleasure to just watch again yeah. and and not a pleasure in like, oh, what an enjoyable, I mean, really the first hour and a half is quite pleasurable, you know, yeah. and then things yeah. ratchet up in that last half hour to, um, something, uh, disturbing, but it, it, from a film standpoint, I still think it's a masterpiece.
0: And didn't you, um, I don't know if you saw this for that, but didn't you take a class in college that was like Spike Lee and Martin Scorsese together? Uh,
1: you're close. Okay. It was this, and I think I mentioned it on the Sex Lies episode. It was a Spike Lee and Steven Soderbergh okay. uh, class, and kind of how their careers paralleled, and you know where they go different ways. So yeah, I watched uh, most, if not all, of the movies he had put out until that time. Um, you know, which which was a good. 10 probably 10 movies or so.
0: Yeah. Yeah, everything
1: he did in the 80s and 90s, I think.
0: So. Right. Um and no, and I think uh maybe I was thinking of Scorsese because I would say Spike Lee and Steven Soderbergh if we're talking about, you know, who was kind of the new Scorsese coming up in the in the late 80s, uh both of them were definitely like strong candidates for that designation.
1: Uh and and you know, and when you think of this movie, Would Do the Right Thing, it's like, man, in a way, like it's like it's tough to say what movies influenced it, but Scorsese is clearly an influence on him, you know? Um, and you know, he did campaign for Robert De Niro to play Sal. So, you know, this, this idea of a New York filmmaker, I think Scorsese has just influenced everybody. But, um, Spike Lee, the other thing with that is, uh, Scorsese was originally supposed to direct clockers in the nineties. And, um, I think he Hmm. ended up, kind of passing it off to Spike Lee and I think that was one of Spike's best movies.
0: Uh yeah, I mean I think there's a lot of parallels here and even as their careers go on and I mean we'll talk about this later but the the like sort of diversity of the kinds of movies that Spike Lee has made I think uh Scorsese has that same kind of uh versatility in in the films that he makes.
1: And when um, did you first see the movie Jobs? So
0: I had not seen, I saw this in I was looking on Letterboxd. I first saw this in 2015 um, as just a movie, you know, this is, it's a classic, obviously at this point, it's an important movie and it was just one of those, I should catch up on this and watch it. And I feel like my experience with this movie mirrors an experience that I have a lot of times with movies that are held up as, as great classics. And I think this is not uncommon where there's such a reputation to the movie that I came to it and I watched it and I was like, that's a good movie, but it didn't blow me away. It, It didn't, I, I wasn't, uh, amazed by it and, and coming back to it this time, I felt the same thing. And honestly, this is the way that I feel a lot about, about a lot of Scorsese movies too, is that I can watch this movie and see it's extremely well-made. It's obviously important and I can respect everything that it does. It just doesn't do that much for me as a viewer.
1: Yeah. Um, a couple of points there. I mean, I do think seeing it, um, not that i hadn't seen other spike lee movies before but when you're watching the chronology like we talked about from she's got to have it you know to school days to this that's that's a pretty good way to start and 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 uh see how he ascends um the other thing i think is two other points about that one is it is sometimes tough to go back and watch something that was so revolutionary 30 years ago and you're watching it with today's eyes. Like I remember the first time I saw North by Northwest, there's no way I could have known what that crop duster scene would have been like in the movie theater, you know, um, when that first came out and, and just how amazing that was. Right. Um, and then lastly for me, obviously I have a special place in my heart for, for New York stories because I grew up all around them.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, that's not. I mean, not that I'm uh, opposed. I I like New York, but I don't have that that same personal connection to it. But yeah, I think that's a tough thing with so many classics, and and I don't know why that is. Because sometimes I'll I'll watch a movie like that, and it it will just amaze me, uh, and I don't know what exactly it is uh, about a particular movie that I feel like it still seems fresh to me, whereas a lot of those classic films are more of a learning experience than uh an entertainment experience I guess I, I would say and it, it it is hard to realize how revolutionary certain things are when you are watching them in a time when you know the revolution that they made or the influence that they had has now been seen in so many other movies and you know and we'll talk about that later too but I I absolutely respect and value this movie and I think it's extremely well made uh I just, I don't have as much personal enthusiasm for it as, as you do. And, and I think as Dave does too, Dave, you watched this movie recently too, didn't you? Yeah. It, now, Dave, was this your first time seeing it?
2: Yes, it was. I thought I had seen it before It's one of those movies that, you know, I could have swore I saw a long time ago, but as I was watching, I was like, yeah, I've definitely never seen this before, but yeah, I, I loved it. Um, you know, as we get into the conversation, I don't know I'll chime in a little, but I, I thought it was uh really powerful and really amazing filmmaking.
0: Hey, Dave,
2: chime in yeah. a little. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah. We'll see what happens, guys. Well,
0: we'll we'll let Dave chime in uh, some more when we come back and talk our general thoughts on Do the Right Thing. <music> Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year and our special bonus episode for our season on the films of 1989. We're talking about Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which is really one of the most important, uh, if not the most important films of 1989. I guess you could argue uh, something like Sex, Lies, and Videotape is, is equally important, but certainly this movie is massively influential and was a huge cultural phenomenon. And uh, And as I was saying earlier, as we were both saying, it can be a little difficult 30 years on to come back to this and look at it and understand how revolutionary it was and how much of a big deal it was. But, uh, Jason, since you have the most enthusiasm, what, what do you think is the best thing about this movie or what, what struck you watching it this time is still fresh.
1: Really? The entire feel of the movie is still fresh to me from that opening punch in the face of, uh, Rosie Perez, like just kind of dancing, like really, really aggressively to fight the power, you know, um, into, uh. Mr. Senor Loverman, you know, Sam Jackson, uh, setting up the day in the heat wave. And I love this uh, these intersecting stories, how they all kind of play out separately, but together. I think the characters, the male characters are well-drawn. I, I do agree with the criticism that the female characters, you know, there's a lot to be desi- le- uh, left on the table there. And I think, you know, Ernest Dickerson maybe we'll never get the credit he deserves for being as brilliant as a cinematographer as he is. So the whole thing to me just feels real. It feels like that could have easily happened one day in Brooklyn.
0: Yeah. I mean, certainly uh, those events are drawn from real life, the kinds of characters, the things that go on in the rhythms of daily life there. And even what happens at the end of the movie uh, the the final half hour, as we we're talking about b- before, when it, it shifts from kind of the slice of life story to this intense, violent confrontation. I mean, that's obviously also inspired by real things that happened around that time, and that that continue to happen, sadly. Um, and I think your point about the female characters is is very true. That there, are, it's not even that the female characters are so poorly drawn; it's that they barely even exist in this movie. I mean, we've got Rosie Perez and this was a breakout for her as the uh, Mookie's baby mama. And you've got Spike Lee's own sister as Mookie's sister. Um, And those are really, I want to say Ruby D. Ruby. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Ruby D. Mother's sister. And, and in a way those, those characters are all, they're just like either objects of desire or protection for the male characters really. Um, And I mean, it doesn't necessarily like, I don't know if it's, we could call it disrespectful to women. It just kind of, they're just not really very relevant to the story, I think. Yeah, they're an afterthought for sure. They are. Um, that is the that is an
1: extremely fair criticism of this film, I think. You know, the flip side of that is, okay, to take a film that for an hour and a half, yeah, there's some serious talk, there's some funny talk, but like you said, it's this kind of fun, like really... Um, fun slice of life, I would say, and to make the tonal shift in that last half hour and make it work, that is incredibly difficult, you know? And I think as poorly drawn as some of those female characters are, you get a really, really clear picture of who these male characters are um, and their points of view in every single scene.
2: It balances them all so well, also. Like, they, everybody gets their moments. Every Everybody is... Uh, a character that's memorable in their own, you know, in their own respect. And there's so many of them, too. I mean, you, you're you really jumping around a lot, but yet it never seems to, you know, lose track of anybody.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the strengths of this movie is that it does give you a clear sense of everyone's point of view and whether you agree with or sympathize with the po- those points of view and whether the movie does, you, you get a real uh, broad sense of that in that. You know, the white characters, uh, the the owners and uh proprietors of Sal's Pizzeria, Danny Aiello and John Taturo, and uh is it Richard Edson, I think, who plays the the second son? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, they they express especially John Turturro's character, express these quite racist thoughts. And the movie isn't sympathizing with those at all, but at the same time, it's making sure you understand these people as fully realized characters beyond just the idea that, like, oh, this guy is a white racist that we would naturally think of as sort of the villain because of that. Um, And I appreciated that. And, And also the Black characters that we might naturally sympathize with, you get to see... The negative thoughts that they have, especially towards like the the Korean shop owners who are the targets of racism from the black characters, um, or or in in part towards the the de minority mayor. Um, de mayor or towards the the Puerto Rican characters, including Rosie Perez's character, who are sort of a minority within this minority neighborhood.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there is racism, there's ageism, there's uh, hatred of. Other people of the same ilk that you're in, you know, there's a lot of that and going to the point of view, even, even the smallest scene where the, um, brownstone owner runs over boogie down shoes and boogie down, you know, and he's got a, he's a white guy with a Larry bird shirt on and boogie down kind of like attacks him. What are you doing in our neighborhood? And he's like, I own, I own the brownstone. And he's like, why don't you go back to Massachusetts? He's like, I was born in Brooklyn you know what I mean? Like, and ah, oh, you weren't of, you know, like there's that whole ho- home turf, hometown pride. Like, is this, is this the melting pot or is this just one races or ethnicities place? Right. And we see that with that iconic sequence of the different characters spinning racial slurs in a very rhythmic way, uh, at different ethnicities.
0: Yeah, just just a side note. It's uh, it's bugging out is the name of that. Bugging
1: out, not boogie down.
0: Yes, that's John, <laughs> boogie John, down. Brocks, right? Uh, Giancarlo Esposito's <laughs> character, who's who's
1: a fantastic act- actor. We all know that as uh, mo- most people probably now like him as uh, Gus Fring from uh, Breaking Bad. But go back and watch these early Spike Lee movies. He's in a lot of them, and he has such an intensity about him. And he just brings it.
0: Yeah, well, as we said, all the performances in this movie are are really strong, and a lot of them are really intense. And I mean, going back to the dialogue, one of the things that I noticed, and you said it, it like it, there's a realism. There's obviously a lot of realism in this movie in terms of the locations, in terms of the kinds of people that that live here and the tensions, the racial tensions. But to me, the dialogue in this movie, and it's not necessarily bad, but it feels very artificial in a self-conscious way, whether it's those scenes of the characters talking directly to the camera that are almost like slam poetry or a lot of the dialogue interactions to me felt very stagey. I mean, I know this is not, but if, if you had told me that this movie was based on a stage play, I would absolutely believe that because it takes place in this very confined, you know, essentially like a single block or a couple of blocks in this neighborhood. And there's a lot of these just kind of Uh, you know, two-hander scenes or a few characters going back and forth to each other. And so, I mean, one of the impressive things is that it doesn't look that way. I mean, as you mentioned, the cinematography by Ernest Dickerson Dickerson is fantastic. And the way the camera kind of swoops around or, you know, into a window and out of a window, uh, all of that stuff is amazing. But it it feels to me in in some ways, almost like it's it's stage bound, and and Spike Lee later on has gone on to make films of stage productions where he just films, uh, you know, a play or a one man show or something. So I think he's conscious of that, um, and I'm not necessarily saying that that's bad, but it's certainly something that I noticed, especially this time, in terms of the very mannered way that the characters speak.
1: I think you have a fair point in some regards, but I think when you see like all of the young black men you know, the way they talk to each other. I think that feels very real to me, but I could see what you're saying about some of those other characters, whether it's, you know, the mayor and mother sister or everything that Mookie says.
0: Right. I mean, and, and again, I'm not saying that it's bad, but this movie feels very written and that's okay. Like it's. But a lot of that's
1: not true. Like all the scenes with the corner guys, that those were all improvised. Yeah. Smiley wasn't even a character in the script. Like he kind of
0: campaigned. Oh, Smiley to is, is in. the worst I could have done without him entirely.
1: <laughs> Go ahead, Josh. Keep digging your hole, my friend. That's No, no.
0: And they, like, this is one of the things that I, again, I'm impressed by this movie and the way that it's made, but it was interesting to me reading some of these reviews that talk about how, The point of view of this movie is giving you sympathy for all of the characters. And I think it does a really good job of giving you a full picture of all of these characters and their good and bad qualities. But for me as a viewer, the result was that I sympathized with no one in this movie. I didn't like any of these characters. I think that's okay. You didn't even like Vito there, Uh, Richard Edson? I mean, but he's kind of weak and that's the point of his character is that he can't stand up to his brother and you know, if he's the one guy in that family who really has the most sympathy and the most connection with the black community around them and yet he can't just say that because he's so intimidated by his brother and by his father. So yeah, I don't, I mean, not that there weren't sympathetic moments, but I realized sort of halfway through the movie, I'm like, I don't like any of these people. They're all, and I don't like, yeah, I don't really sympathize with them, or I don't really feel like I'm rooting for any of them.
2: Not even Sweet Dick Willie? <laughs>
0: yeah, the <laughs> corner man? <laughs> no, not really.
2: Interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and again, it's not that that made it bad. I think part of the strength of the movie is that it shows you that none of these people are all good or all bad. Um, but for me, it 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 had the result of feeling like, I don't really care what happens to these people. Because... I don't really like any of them. So did you, so if you didn't care what about the people,
1: when the riot happened and, you know, Radio Rahim was killed did
0: that, none of that affected you in one way or another? No, I mean, not on an emotional level. I mean, I can see it as being a, a reflection of real serious inequality in society. And I think it makes that point very well. Um, but yeah, I hated radio Rahim. He was super annoying and he's completely inconsiderate with his goddamn boombox. So (laughs) I mean, I I I gotta agree
2: with Josh on that one.
0: (laughs) Not that I wanted to see him killed. And obviously it's a horrible injustice that he's killed by this cop because of, because he had a boombox. Um, but I didn't sympathize with him as a person. And in that particular scene, up until it gets obviously like way out of control, I sympathize with Sal, who's like, turn your loud music off in my pizza shop.
1: Right. Uh, He wasn't killed because he had a boombox. He was killed because he was uh, a black guy who was choking a white guy to death.
0: Well, that's true. But I mean, the (laughs) boombox is what starts it off. My point being that it's not that I wanted to see him get killed, but in that particular interaction and really all of his interactions, I found him extremely unlikable. And I think that's okay in part because the point isn't that he's likable and therefore he doesn't deserve to die. The point is that no one in that position deserves to die. And especially not just because of being black, but as a character, I didn't like him. I think that's fair. Um, I mean,
1: all these, when you get to the riot, it's like, are you seeing, it's not even about taking any sides to me at that point. It's, you're just seeing one bad decision after the next, after the next. And, I think you know that idea of it going um it, as one of the hottest days of the summer, and people just feel kind of um cooped up, maybe how some of us feel now, you know <laughs> yeah, um, you know it it just leads to this escalation in every single way that shouldn't have happened, and I do think they like pretty much all of them made bad decisions in that in that sequence right I mean but human decisions.
2: The riot feels almost not like a dream sequence, but like a a scenario in which every worst possible uh, choice is made.
0: Yeah. And I guess I, I, I realize that the riot is like the point of the movie and is why the movie is so powerful. But I like the movie much more as this slice of life thing where I think you get a really clear sense of all those racial tensions and of all those inequalities and unfairnesses before you get to the riot. And I almost would have preferred because the riot shows that this is an unusual day that this isn't something that happens every day. There's not a riot every day. There's not someone killed every day. And I feel like it's almost more powerful if you leave it on that everyday level and you realize this is what happens every day. These kind of passive aggressive, these microaggressions, the white people talking in private, saying racist things, uh, being condescending, the black people unable to make their own money in their own neighborhoods. Like those are the things that happen every single day. And so I, I, you know, I'm not saying that the riot isn't powerful. It is, and it's clearly one of the main reasons why this movie is remembered. But I was a lot more captivated by what happened before that than I was by the riot.
1: I can understand that. And, you know, I I will agree that like that was the more enjoyable part of the movie from just the hey, let's watch a movie standpoint. But I would disagree. I know what you're saying. Like, hey, this doesn't happen every day, but it happened enough. In those days, and sadly still to today, that um, that escalation doesn't seem out of place.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it seems out of place per se, but I guess I just felt like it was putting too much of a point on what the movie says more subtly earlier on. But on the other hand, Spike Lee is not a subtle filmmaker in any way. And I mean, I think to me, as not particularly a big fan of his work overall, like that's one thing that I know to expect from a Spike Lee movie, that if there's a way to make a point with subtlety, he will avoid that. And if there's a way to make a point five times really in your face, he'll do that instead. And that's just kind of his style.
1: I thought one interesting argument to come out of this movie was why did Mookie throw the trash can into Sal's window? And, you know, Spike Lee says he did it because he just saw his friend get killed and the racial injustice and he was angry. But like um, a lot of white viewers were like, oh, Mookie did it because he was protecting Sal. He took the heat off of Sal and, you know, moved it towards the shop, which I thought was a interesting justification of his actions.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And I don't think that makes sense. I think the point is that Mookie up until that Part is, I mean, he is the main character as much as there is a main character, and he's the more sympathetic character from the perspective, say, of a white audience. And the point there is to show that even that guy who has been working well with the white business owners, who's getting paid by them, who's even being called like a surrogate son to them. Even he is not on, he's not actually on the level with them. And there's all that tension that builds up in him over time of the way that he's treated in this kind of condescending way and the way that he's held down. And even that guy can break from all that tension at some point. It's not just bugging out who's loud and vocal the whole time. It's not just Radio Rahim who's constantly in your face. It's even kind of like quiet, unassuming Mookie who deals with this treatment and it affects him in a way that builds up and has to have a release at some point. What do you think of Spike Lee, the actor? I mean, obviously he's not a great actor. I honestly, going into this movie, I had a memory of him being worse in it. And, and I think he's fine. Like Mookie is meant to be this kind of like, again, unassuming guy, uh, guy who doesn't, he's just kind of on the fringes, even though he's the main character of the movie and everyone's life, he's kind of out on the fringes. So I think his performance is fine here, but would it have been better if he had cast a more seasoned actor? Maybe. And especially because so many of the other performances in the movie are really good. Um, as you mentioned. Um, But what, what do you think of Spike Lee as an actor?
1: I kind of, I mean, I agree. I think he can get away with it here because um, Mookie is kind of more of a a quiet character and just kind of, you know, um, part of the neighborhood as opposed to like one of the big uh, bright lights in the neighborhood, you know? Um, And, and, and to me, that's okay because all those performances from all the other actors that, are bigger work in this one that it's okay to have a few of these, you know, more, uh, I'm not, even. I, I just think like more straight down the middle, I guess you would say is how he played it, you know, cause you're always going to remember Ozzie Davis as the mayor and you're going to remember Totoro, and you're going to remember bugging out. And, you know, like there's, uh, even Frank Vincent with his little, uh, <laughs> you know, drive through the neighborhood and the car getting, uh, splashdown you got you got all these very uh classically or new york trained actors who are really bringing a a great deal of authenticity to it so i i'm not a huge fan of him as an actor but he i agree he's fine here
0: yeah and like you mentioned there's so many good performances in this movie and 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 people who are going back to what i was saying about the stagey feel of it i mean ozzy davis and ruby d especially known for so much theater work um and yeah. I, I, almost every performance. I mean, even in small roles, you know, Sam, Samuel L. Jackson as the radio DJ brings exactly the right energy to that part. And there's the great brother dynamic between John Taturo and Richard Edson. Um, so many good performances that it doesn't. And, and in a way, Mookie being overshadowed or Spike Lee being overshadowed by the other actors works for that ending. Yes, I agree. Because you don't expect that from that character. And then all of a sudden, there he is. So yeah, I mean, I don't think I want to see and I don't know, Spike Lee, especially as his career has gone on has not acted very much. Um, I don't know that I want to see more movies that he acts in. But I think he, he, he performs the right function here, uh, playing Mookie. Should we say more about any of the technical aspects? I mean, we mentioned Ernest Dickerson, some of those, those crane shots or those, uh, those long takes are just phenomenal in this movie.
1: Yeah. I mean, dude, he just moves the camera with such a purpose. Really impressive. Um I think the other things you want to, you know, want to look back on are like there's a lot of iconic moments that we talked about. You know, we know the riot, we know the racial slam poetry as you called it, you know, Radio Rahim's love and hate monologue, I think the Mookie and Pino discussion of like you know why Pino hates black people when all of his favorite celebrities are black is right. is pretty unique and uh, pretty interesting. And then that even that that Rosie Perez intro sequence and um, and when they undo the fire hydrant, there there is a lot of iconic movie making going on here.
0: Yeah, absolutely, there there is. And I mean, just the way even starting with that Rosie Perez intro sequence, you're like, oh, this movie doesn't look like anything else that was released in 1989, and really not like anything that was released since then in a lot of ways.
1: Or before then,
0: that's what I couldn't really think of a movie that this
1: felt like that I had seen.
0: Right, right. I mean, I think there's movies, and and one review that I read, it might have been mentioned uh, elsewhere in the Ebert review, uh, that talked about you know these kind of working class, obviously not with black characters, but working class immigrant dramas from like the 40s and 50s. You know, you could watch something like A Tree Grows in Brooklyn that that take place, you know, just within this small radius. Of uh, of a few blocks or whatever, and all the characters living in these small apartments and congregating on the streets or whatever. So I think there is a history there, but certainly not with movies that that took black characters seriously. That's not something that
1: and and I think this definitely helped um, move this format towards an explosion. You know, yes, we see a, a lot of Richard Linkletter movies. You know, kind of going in this um, kind of direction after this as well
0: um so uh should we give this uh, a rating uh did you have any other out of five, five
1: slices five slices from sales good
0: yeah there you go how many slices would you get you us?
1: get four and a half slices of Sal's pizzeria Sal's special for me
0: four, yeah four and a half all right and 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 cheese. extra cheese is two dollars make sure you uh... <laughs>
1: I think probably Sal puts on enough cheese as it is. I'm not worried about the extra cheese. Right. Real fast, you know that uh, that pizzeria they built it, you know, on an empty lot, and it as a part of the set, and it became a working pizzeria. So those actors were actually making pizzas for their castmates during the filming of this.
0: I bet it wasn't as good as a uh, real pizzeria, though. I don't know if John Turturro is the guy you want making your pizza.
1: Oh, dude, he's so convincing. I, I'll take anything from John Turturro. All right,
0: fair enough. Uh, So, I'm going to give this three and a half slices out of five. Like I said, I admire a lot about this movie. I think it's extremely well made. For me as a viewer, it just kind of, it, it didn't engage me as much as I would have liked, so. I
1: think three and a half is a good rating, and you did a good job of backing up your criticisms this week, so. Thank you. Um, much better than your performance in the bottle rocket episode where
0: you shamed your entire family which which we haven't released yet so that was kind of a, a weirdly uh <laughs> it's a weird preview so, for something
1: something for
2: everyone to look forward to in yeah, the 96 that's
0: great uh dave what, what what rating would you give this uh out of five
2: uh i'm gonna agree with jason four and a half.
0: Four and a half slices, slices. all yeah. right Well, let's come back then and talk about the legacy of Do the Right Thing. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1989, we've been talking about Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. And we've talked so much about how influential this movie is and and also how it kind of Not wasn't influenced by other movies, but was such a unique thing when it came out. So, I mean, probably the first legacy that we want to talk about is movies being influenced by this film.
1: Yeah, we kind of mentioned that kind of uh, sprawling neighborhood uh, ensemble, interweaving stories. But I also think, as we know, this opened up a whole world of filmmaking and story opportunities to black filmmakers talking about inner city stories on a more mainstream level.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I think if you look at the nineties, that was, a, there was a huge explosion of that. I mean, obviously a couple of years later, Boys in the Hood from John Singleton was another massive right. uh, factor in that. But the nineties are really an era of so many of these dramas about black working class life that got mainstream attention and got wide releases. And I feel like that's something that then was, was unfortunately scaled back a bit. And we don't necessarily get as much of that now, or if there are movies like that, they don't make wide releases in theaters. They're on a streaming service or, you know, in a very limited indie release or whatever that even Spike Lee, if he makes movies like that now, they don't get the same wide attention for the most part that they kind of stopped. I mean, I think from like,
1: uh, you know, you're talking about uh, like, you know, do the right thing and menace to society. That's one branch of it where you're looking at these like really gritty, hard stories to tell. And then the other side of it is like the barber shop and soul food where these ensemble, uh, like you said, slices of life stories that we're telling inside of the um, black community, family, neighborhood style stories.
2: Just recently, we had uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco, which I think we use this as a puzzle piece on that episode on piecing it together. I I think there was a lot of similarities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great movie, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, I think. Um, And and yeah, obviously, there's so much influence. I mean, you talk about those more slice of life comedies, uh, you know, Malcolm D. Lee, who directed like The Best Man and the the sequel to that and a number of other of those kinds of movies is Spike Lee's cousin. um, Right. He helped him. Kind of,
1: jumpstart the career
0: there. Right, right, and he's Malcolm Lee has definitely had a more, uh, sort of straightforward mainstream career than Spike Lee has. Um, and that's another thing is as, as I kind of mentioned, Spike Lee's career after this. I mean, this this put him on a whole new level as a filmmaker, and he went on to make some highly acclaimed, sort of awards type movies like his Malcolm X biopic with uh, Denzel Washington. But he has such a varied career and he's extremely prolific. And, you know, as often as he, he might make those awards friendly movies, you know, he's worked in, in mainstream uh, blockbustery kind of things like Inside Man. He's made a ton of documentaries and, and concert films. And, and like I was saying before, like uh, one man show or, or stage production documentary, like performance documentaries and and just all sorts of Strange movies that are just as often like torn apart by critics as they are highly acclaimed. So, uh, I think he's on the one hand, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of his stuff. Uh, But on the other hand, you have to respect him for always doing exactly what he wants to do.
1: I think for a while, both you and I agreed that his more interesting work was the director for higher work. Like you mentioned, Inside Man, I mentioned Clockers. He was really, really bringing such insight as a director to the. To those films that he didn't write, you know. Um, But then with Black Klansman, it's like, man, that 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 probably is a top three all time for this guy, you know, and um some of his best writing and directing.
0: Yeah, I like Black Klansman. I, I feel like I have a lot of similar. I think Black Klansman has a tone problem that maybe do the right thing handles better. But certainly it was the movie that really brought him back. To the same level as this, where it was highly acclaimed by critics, that was nominated for multiple Oscars, and um, you know was a big hit at the box office, and all of that stuff came together probably for the first time, at least since Malcolm X, and maybe for the first time even since this film. Um, but I do love inside man and I haven't seen, I'm sure Jason that you've seen far more Spike Lee movies than I have. I think I've only seen eight or nine movies. And again, he's very prolific. And some of the stuff I've seen is not his most notable work. Um, but I like inside man a lot. I like 25th hour a lot too, which is another, uh, work for hire project that, uh, I think he did a great job. Yeah.
1: Look, you should watch the stuff he did in the nineties. But if you're going to be like, Hey, what's the most underrated look, there's there is a number of good movies that people know about. And if you're, but there are a few underrated gems that we, you know, we mentioned clockers, underrated gem. The other one that I would say is bamboozled. That movie is really funny and really poignant. And, uh, I highly recommend that film, but, uh, yeah, I mean, this one, this one to me is, is still the height. The fact that they did this in one or two blocks on Stuyvesant Ave and were able to make this work the way they did is just so impressive to me and um josh you had mentioned the stage like this feels like it could have been part of the stage dude i thought when i was watching this i was like this movie must have been like etched into lin-manuel miranda's brain when he was writing in the heights
0: <laughs> yes i thought that too actually absolutely and i mean we haven't seen the in the heights movie yet um and we, who knows when we will but i have i don't know have you seen in the heights on stage i saw it on stage here in Vegas. i think
1: we saw it together in the oh, Super yeah
0: we might have. theater yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there's that, even
1: that, the there's even it's funny because in this movie, there's even the Paragua man who comes through. Yeah. And I immediately think of in the heights at that.
0: Point. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and you mentioned Bamboozle. I haven't seen bamboozled, but that's a movie that I think when it was released was not particularly well regarded and has really even just recently within the last. I think there might have been an anniversary for it or something. And I've seen a lot of people talking about how underrated it is and how brilliant it is and relevant. It still is. So.
1: Yeah, I, re- I that one was like one that I knew very little about and I wa- and man, it just sneaks up on you. It's so good and it's really funny. It's kind of like his King of Comedy, if, if you want to go there, even though he directed the original Kings of Comedy, yes, which is not did. what I was
0: talking about. No. So. Um, and this movie was also a launch pad for a bunch of actors. I mean, this was the first screen appearance for Rosie Perez. It was the first screen appearance for Martin Lawrence, who plays one of the kind of like, I don't know teenage or young characters who's just wandering around the block and a big breakthrough. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson makes such an impression, and he'd done he'd done some small things before this, but it was it was definitely a breakthrough for him for, as well. So Spike Lee clearly has an eye for these actors, not only the seasoned veterans like Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee, but. Young young actors who went on to do huge things after this.
1: Yeah, and you know Sam Jackson, very
0: good in uh, in Mo Better Blues,
1: which uh, another good Spike Lee movie from the nineties.
0: Yes, and another one I haven't seen. And and we were talking a little bit about Fight the Power, which is such a signature song for Public Enemy, and I had had no idea that that was written at the request of Spike Lee for this movie. I mean, I feel like that's like the definitive Public Enemy
1: song.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think you're right, and now
1: it's kind of sad that you know Flavor Flav's. Not in the group anymore because he's so
0: important to that song. Just his his uh, vocal ferocity, you know. I think he's back in. I think they've oh. they've gone back and forth. I think he's now actually technically returned.
1: But y- you know, since we're since we you know we're talking about like this as this is going on where we're all quarantined. I saw a um like a video. I think it was from Dwayne Perkins, the comedian. It was on like his Instagram. The there was like it was a shot, and it was in Brooklyn, I think. And someone was blasting, um, uh, Juicy by Biggie Smalls, you know, out their window, and the whole neighborhood was singing it from their windows. And it felt so authentically Brooklyn to me, like, and it felt like exactly like something that could have been in this movie. It was, it was pretty cool, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, see now I guess uh, you know, instead of being annoyed by that, uh people would embrace it. But in nineteen eighty nine
1: it was a different No, time. it's a yeah, different thing. Hey, one other thing,
0: or two other things, you yes. know, um
1: that they did release a radio Rahim Air Jordan for all you sneakerheads out there that kinda had the colors of his bed shirt.
2: Josh, you have those, don't you?
1: Yeah, Josh. Uh, oh yes, been, you know, uh, I'm a I'm a
2: big uh, sneakerhead. It's true.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hey, but the last thing, Josh, is um this was uh the movie that Barack and Michelle Obama saw, uh, saw on their first date. Yeah, and there's a funny line where uh, Spike Lee they t- you know, as I think Barack had mentioned it to him or something and uh and he goes he's like, "Well, it's a good thing you guys didn't go see Driving Miss Daisy," you know, <laughs> or something like that.
0: <laughs> yes. But yeah, there's kind of fun. There's that movie uh, South Side With You, which is about Barack and Michelle Obama's first date where they go. I've seen that movie and it's not, not necessarily like a great movie, but um, they do go see this and you you see them discuss it in that movie after they get out of the theater. Yeah. And one one fun thing that and I mean, this goes to my not having seen other Spike Lee movies, but he did uh, kind of use these characters later on in some of his other uh, films. I mean, there is Inside Man where Sal's pizza gets delivered um and that i've seen but uh also in red hook summer which is a movie that i haven't seen um that that mookie shows up again uh played again by spike lee and then uh on the she's gotta have it tv series on netflix which i also haven't watched uh rosie perez shows up as her character right and
1: and they mentioned mookie in that and then the two officers long and ponte are in jungle fever again so i like all that stuff but um you know, those are the ones that uh, I had mentioned the, the Spike Lee, he's got like six movies that consist of this Chronicles of Brooklyn series, which are, she's got to have it do the right thing. Crooklyn, Clockers, He Got Game, and Red Hook Summer. So um, I'm not saying they all connect, but um, you will see interwoven uh, pieces in there. You know, I still remember John Totoro's like very small part in He Got Game. He just makes the most of all his screen screen time wherever he's in. So yeah, uh some some good stuff here, man.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh so. the the, la- the last legacy thing would be I suppose the the impact on the Oscars if anything. Obviously, that was a huge controversy that this movie wasn't uh nominated, but um it you know, it didn't necessarily change things uh, as we've noted, right. but it it certainly had an impact on how people view the Oscars.
1: And I'm going to let you two wrap this up cuz my kiddos at the door. But as always, it's fun talking to you. And uh, I'm still Jason Harris comedy, J Harris comedy on all the social. We're awesome movie or an awesome movie pod on the socials. Have a good day, fellas. How do you want to do that, Dave?
0: <laughs> oh,
2: how, how, however you'd like. You're you're the uh, th- this is all part of the plan, right? No, right? no, not at all. <laughs> I am
0: at joshbellhateseverything.com, dot com, joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at signal bleed on Twitter. And thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of Awesome Movie Year. Tune in for
2: more stuff coming soon. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west.